Before we get started, a note. These things betwixt explores the dark corners of our world, the abandoned places within, and esoteric thoughts perhaps better left unexamined. Listener discretion is advised. This is a story about four things. You'll be introduced to them one at a time. All of these things existed, or maybe none of them did. Best to not dwell on it. You'll get a sense of the tale, but you won't understand how this story ends until you've reached the final lines. So listen closely. The first thing this story is about is a large tree that took root thousands of moons ago. It stands far to the north, past the clay slopes of the Ruby Mountain, past the plush, mossy carpets of the Zimmeridi forests, and the rocky, crab-infested shores of the Lonely Lake. Indeed, it made its home deep within the shimmering sands of the Scorch. The tree started life on the banks of an oasis as a pit spat from the mouth of a caravan merchant. It took time, and nothing was guaranteed, but it persevered against the terrible sun, drinking often from the large pond that served as its cradle. Its roots spread far through the sand and reached beneath the stilled waters. Its trunk grew thick and fat, its branches reached up towards the sky, and once it showed the desert sun it could not be killed, the sun itself seemed to relent. The tree dwarfed all others for miles, casting a thick, cooling shade beneath it. Soon, people took note of the tree and the waters. They built a small settlement called Alawat along the banks of the oasis. But not all who came to Alawat were pure of heart. An arrogant, greedy prince heard about the oasis and decided to build his palace around the tree to keep it for himself. And for a time, it was his. But the tree continued to grow taller and taller. It tore down the palace wall with its roots, pelted the roof with fruits whose rinds were hard as stone. The arrogant prince looked at this combative tree and declared that it would be chopped down, regardless of the pleasant shade it cast. Hundreds of men made the attempt, but the tree's bark was much too strong to be cut by any axe wielded by such frail creatures. And so, defeated, the prince decided to leave. But before he left, he gave the tree its name. He called it the Nephilim Tree, and left Alawat for less obstinate locales. So it was that Alawat grew and grew, protected by the colossal Nephilim Tree. The city became a grand place of trade and prosperity and learning, Great markets full of fragrant spices, exotic fruits, and spicy chilies of every color filled the dusty squares. Learned scholars founded libraries containing tomes collected from the world over. And all of the residents lived in mostly happiness and harmony. At least until the ink scourge came. 
The Nephilim tree watched as thousands of its people were buried in the scorch, two of whom were dearly missed by a small child. The second thing this story is about is an orphan named Hamna. The ink scourge took all that she loved, her mother, her father, her home. She was just another dirty orphan on the plagued streets of Alawat. Hamna begged for a time, following the other children as they roamed the marketplace. But her time of begging didn't last long, because Hamna was not like other orphans. She spent her days watching the merchants haggle and barter with each other. She watched his coin passed hands all day. She watched it travel from stall to stall, travel between grumpy men with sweaty foreheads who shouted and made deals with each other. How uncomfortable they looked. How overheated. When she was hot and fussy, Hamna sat beneath the shade of the Nephilim tree and munched a fruit she'd plucked from one of the wild orchards growing around the city. The idea came upon her like a sandstorm. Cranky men. Coin. Fruit. She scavenged a battered basket from an alleyway and rose before the sun the next morning. She plucked the natural fruits of the oasis, golden dates, violet figs, thumb-sized almonds, and olives as salty as orphan tears. All of them went into the basket. She waited outside the marketplace until the men began to pass coin between them. Hamna stepped within that coliseum of commerce and mimicked their stern faces. Golden dates, she called. Sweet figs. Stay happy. Stay refreshed. The men gawked at the girl. Never had a woman, much less a child, come into the market to sell her goods. For a moment, no one knew what would happen. This is the third thing this story is about. An old honey merchant named Atah watched Hamna as she made her way through the crowd of incredulous men. Atah was one of the oldest men in the market. He'd been there since the selfish prince had tried to build his palace seasons ago. He couldn't remember anything like this ever happening. The old merchant considered what had brought the girl to this moment. She'd obviously lost her parents to the ink scourge. Atah knew her grief. He'd lost his wife to the same awful disease, had seen her left to the scorch. Almonds and salty olives, forget your troubles for a moment. Feast upon the gifts of Alawat, she cried. A stern-looking younger man clenched his fist and began to move forward. What it was he intended to do, Ata didn't know, but he didn't care to find out. He raised his hand above his fist and cried out, A little fig! The whole marketplace turned to look at him. He grunted as he stood and repeated himself. I'll have a little fig. Hamna pretended to scowl at the merchant as she approached. She'd learned the posture from watching the men during their dealings, but she didn't fool anyone. A copper for a fig, a silver for a date or olive. The almonds are four copper for a measure. 
Hamna put the basket on her hip and reached with an outstretched palm. A hard bargain, Ata said, but fair enough. The old merchant pressed a copper into her palm and selected a fig. The whole market held its breath. The old man popped the fig into his mouth and chewed. He nodded his approval. Truly a magnificent piece of fruit. Many thanks, little fig. The girl before him beamed. She didn't know it, but that was the first time a girl had ever sold something in the market. From that day on, Hamna was adored around the dusty stalls and bundled goods. The men looked for her during the summer months when the heat was unbearable. Where is little fig? they would ask. Every day she would gather fruit and trade it for coins from sunrise to market close. She'd save the money, using it to upgrade her basket and buy new fruits from travelers. And every day she fell more in love with being a merchant. Her dreams were filled with azure peppers, green coffee beans, sour desert cherries with stone pits and cascades of golden coin. Tell me, what does Little Fig plan to do when she becomes a woman? Ata asked her one day after buying a star-shaped fruit. I will open my own stall, of course. Ata nodded noncommittally. But inside, he was curious about how such a thing would work. The men would never allow her to own a stall. They appreciated her fruits, and they liked Little Fig. But such things were not done. The poor girl would never achieve her dream. Ata took a bite of the fruit. It was as sour as the men in the marketplace. And then Ata had an idea. Since his wife had gone to the scorch, he'd been tending to his bees and honey by himself. He worried about what would happen to them when it was his turn to be handed over to the scorch. He had no children. They'd been elusive when he and his wife were younger. But before him stood a worthy apprentice. Ata was respected around the marketplace. If he vouched for Hamna, took her in, gave her a place, perhaps the others would follow. A noble goal, Ata said. Tell me, would you like to sell your fruits next to my honey? They would pair well, and we could make much coin. Hamna's eyes glowed with pride. You would offer that? I would. For a price, I will rent you space in my stall, 30% of the fruit sales, and you will help me with the bees. Hamna chewed on the terms for a moment. 20%. A moment passed. A hard bargain, but fair enough. Truly a magnificent apprentice. Ata and Hamna shook hands and settled on a time to meet the next morning. Hamna was overjoyed. What would she bring to her stall? Her normal wares, of course, but Hamna knew it was important to make a splash. She wanted to be a notice at Ata's stall. As she sold the rest of her olives, she looked down the street and watched as a group of children kicked an overripe fruit from the Nephilim tree. The fallen fruit from the tree was never great after hitting the ground. Too bruised, too bitter. 
but there were rumors that high in the canopy, the ripest fruit sat waiting to be picked for anyone who dared climb the massive tree. Hamna knew immediately that she had to have a Nephilim fruit for her stall. She knew that her practice climbing Nephilim's smaller cousins would aid her. And so for her, the decision had been made. Before the sun rose the next morning, Hamna set out for the tree, determined to find only the ripest, sweetest fruits she could. She stood at the base of the tree, tied a sack to her waist, and bravely began climbing the rough, thick bark. As she clambered up the tree, ignoring the heights and the thought of what would happen to her if she fell, she finally reached the canopy as the sun began to rise. Below her, people began to enter the streets, and before too long, a small crowd had gathered to gaze up at the little merchant. Hamna plucked one fruit, another, then another. She had only room in her sack for a few more before she had to descend. She looked around the leaves for a moment to find the best fruit available. And there, nestled between a couple branches and arms reach away, the largest fruit she had ever seen caught her eye. It was the heart of the Nephilim tree. She grinned and reached out. A sharp hiss filled the morning air. Hamna jumped nearly out of her skin. And this is the fourth thing this story is about. Far to the south, before the Nephilim tree and the walls of Alawat, before the scorch was nothing but a warning given to a traveler, there was another city. And within that city lived a serpent named Brother Boomslang. Brother Boomslang kept to himself, hiding in the trees and basking in the hot sun far above. He was happy, far from the prying eyes of the townsfolk, content enough to just feast on small lizards and frogs. One day, Brother Boomslang settled for a nap where the canopy grew thin. While resting in the sun, he closed his eyes, fell asleep, and had a dream of catching chameleons. He twisted and coiled, and before he could wake up, he fell from the tree and landed in the dirt before a small boy. Brother Boomslang was shocked. Imagine one moment being high and safe, the next bruised and surprised as a small child was stepping forward. Brother Boomslang didn't think at all when the boy's foot stepped on his tail. He just lashed out and sank his fangs deep into the boy's ankle. It's sad. A tragedy, really. Just be glad you weren't there to hear that little boy's screams as he died. Brother Boomslang heard the people in town gathering to find him, listened to them collecting rocks to smash his head in. He knew he couldn't stay, so he fled north. But before he could leave town, a woman caught him and covered him in hot black pitch. He roiled and lashed out and hissed. He barely escaped with his life. And so it was that Brother Boomslang fled north from town to town, looking for someplace safe. But the tales traveled faster than he did. 
people were on the lookout for an evil tarred serpent. And every place he found, humans were ready to smash his head in yet again. So he traveled past the Ruby Mountains and the Zimmeridi forests. He swam across the lonely lake and crawled his way through the hot scorch. And there he saw it. The tallest tree he'd ever seen. His new home. He climbed the tree in the dark and lived there, growing larger and larger as the years passed. He vowed he would never let another human threaten him without paying dearly for it. Which explains what Brother Boomslang was doing coiled behind the heart of the Nephilim tree. When the orphan named Hamna reached out for the fruit, Brother Boomslang didn't hesitate. He struck. Hamna looked down at her hand, Six bright red holes between her thumb and her forefinger began to ooze blood. Yellow, jaundiced venom trembled on the rim of the puncture for breath, then trickled down her hand. She looked past the wound to the serpent. Have you killed me, Brother Snake? Brother Boom Slaying hissed, coiled, and watched with his cold black eyes. Hamna felt her arms stiffen, her chest grow tight. Darkness swam across her vision. She felt her body go limp. And then there was only gravity. She fell from the Nephilim tree like a hell-bound angel. The people who gathered to watch her ascent screamed as she plunged into the waters below. They thought she was dead. She should have been dead. But a man leapt in after her and dragged her out to the bank. A doctor was retrieved and first mistook her for a corpse. But as he listened to her chest, he heard a single solitary thump of her heart. She was brought to a sickbed and puzzled over by scholars and physicians. When the marketplace heard what had happened, all the men were distraught, but the one who grieved most was Ata. He stayed by her bedside for a long time, refusing to say anything until the doctors told him to go home one day. Instead of standing, Ata cleared his throat. Does she sleep? She does. A sleep so vast and firm it is as of death. When will she wake? The doctor looked at the old merchant. A week, a month, a year, a hundred years, we do not know. The Nephilim tree has made the wound weird. She might never wake. Hamna needs a miracle. A hundred years. Ata thought it over for a long while, making up his mind. Then he stood and told the doctor he would return. This is a story about four things, and you won't understand how it ends until you hear my final words. So listen closely and remember. My name is Mark Belial, and these things betwixt have been waiting for you. The year is 1596. The place, China. 
A physician named Li Shi Chen is putting the finishing touches on what will be his magnum opus. The work is called the Bengao Gangmu, or the Compendium of Materia Medica. The physician has painstakingly recorded about 1,900 entries into the compendium, forming the most complete contemporary record of Chinese medicine produced at the time. Forming the most complete record of contemporary Chinese medicine produced in history. To form this seminal work, Li Shi Chen read and researched 800 other books on the subject of herbal medicine. Over the course of 30 years, the good physician worked and experimented to find the best cures for that which ailed the people of the Ming Dynasty. For his hard work and efforts, he was compared to a Chinese mythological figure named Shenong, the god who gave instruction on herbal and agricultural medicine. Even for today's medical reference books, the compendium is daunting. It contains 53 volumes, and the table of contents contains 1,160 hand-drawn illustrations. The first four indexes are a comprehensive list of herbs that could treat common illnesses. After that, volumes 5 through 53 contain 1,892 herbs, of which 374 were cataloged and added by Lee himself. Each of those entries contained the herb's name, shape, odor, effects, and recipes for preparation. Those volumes also contained over 11,000 prescriptions. 8,160 of those were compiled and described by Lee. And because Physician Lee wasn't quite done proving his value, the compendium also contained a multitude of information about subjects not immediately concerned about medicine. Indeed, the Materia Medica also contained writings on astronomy, history, biology, chemistry, geology, mineralogy, and mining. So no wonder the compendium was viewed as the work of a god. The tomes sought to disprove and correct many thoughts and theories about medicine around the world. This made it an invaluable font of knowledge for those who wished to help humanity. And while the first 51 volumes are full of interesting herbology and animal biology, a most peculiar entry can be found buried within the entries of volume 52. Lee, writing in the foreword to that volume, said, quote, At the beginning, I have placed the waters and fires, followed by the soils. They are followed by the worms, scaly animals and crustaceans, fowl and quadruped, and man concludes the list. From the low, I have ascended to the noble. Volume 52 is sinisterly titled Man as Medicine. Within that volume, there are 37 entries and hundreds of prescriptions and medicines derived from the human body. In fact, there are 41 prescriptions for human hair collected from combing, and another 6 for human earwax. 45 prescriptions listed are for human urine, and another 12 for menstrual blood. One could harvest tooth tartar to make two prescriptions, the tooth itself for another eight, and should you be so inclined, there are 33 prescriptions guiding the use of human feces for cures. But Physician Lee saved the most amazing for last. While the final two entries consider themselves with doctor's reference notes, 
entry 52.35 describes something that is almost beyond belief. During his research, Li discovered a passage from another scholar named Tao Zongyi. The book, called Talks While the Plow Is Resting, had been published 300 years earlier during the Wan Dynasty. There have been many attempts at describing a panacea for humans. For as long as we've understood remedies, humanity has been searching for miracle cures for all sorts of maladies. But rarely ever are as they as sweet and sticky as the one Tao had learned of. Lee, rightly fascinated, transcribed Tao's miracle cure in the compendium. Quote, According to Tao Zongyi in his talks while the plow rests, in the lands of the Arabs, there are men 70 or 80 years old who are willing to give their bodies to save others. Such a one takes no more food or drink, only bathing and eating a little honey, till, after a month, his excreta are nothing but honey. Then death ensues. His compatriots place the body to macerate in a stone coffin full of honey, with an inscription giving the year and month of burial. After a hundred years, the seals are removed, and the confections so formed used for the treatment of wounds and fractures of body and limbs. Only a small amount taken internally is needed for cure. Although it is scarce in those parts, the common people called it mellified man, or in their foreign speech, munai. Candied old men confections meant to cure the world. The story goes that if you wandered down the right marketplace alley with enough coin and bumped into the right merchant, you could easily buy a hunk of mellified man. What did this miracle cure look like? Hunks of yellowed rock candy? Maybe it was more like candied bacon jerky. Long strips of desiccated flesh with a crunchy, sticky coating. Both Tao and Lee made it clear the mellified man could be used to treat broken bones and fractures by merely placing the product on the break. Or one could just pop it into their mouth and chew it. Much like the Soko Shinbutsu, the mellified men's path towards mummification began with an extreme diet. Once the man decided to become mellified, the process started with food restrictions and fasting. They would take little water as they slowly began to subsist entirely on honey. The thought was to soak the person's entire body with the miraculous product. Soon, honey would seep from their pores and orifices as they slowly became more frail. An all-sugar diet would be fatal fairly quickly. But in the meantime, the stuff poured out a sweat and the men's thick, tarry stools would consist of entirely partially digested honey. All things so sweet cannot last. And as the men expired, the mummification process continued into the grave. A hundred years in a coffin soaked in honey. The body suspended in a sticky mess. And then finally, the day when the mummy was revealed. But grim business followed. Harvesting the mellified man couldn't have been a pleasant task no matter how you cut it. And while a man might have undertaken mellification as an altruistic act, the real world so often rewards the shameless. Once the mellified was stripped of its medicinal flesh, 
it was taken to a market where its rarity made it as a prized commodity. How much coin was passed for a single hunk of the stuff? How many people paid the price for the hope that it could set twisted limbs and heal broken bodies? Did it even work? Physician Lee couldn't answer any of those questions, because the good doctor couldn't even tell you if the mellified man was real. Quote, I myself do not know whether the tale is true or not. In any case, I append it for the consideration of the learned. That fact bears keeping in mind. In her book Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, Mary Roach admits Lee wasn't sure if the story was to be believed or not. After all, Lee mentions it at the very end of his compendium, near the doctor's notes. It's possible he was just as skeptical as we are today. And for the original transcriber of the legend, Tao Zongyi, well, there was some basis for confusion in his tale. Scholars who study Chinese medicine dug into the legend of the mellified man and came up with some solid evidence that it was just a giant misunderstanding. Lu Guijin and Joseph Needham, two of these scholars, note that while the story itself is Arabic, Tao may have gotten the geographical area confused with Burma, or modern-day Myanmar. At the time, Burmese acolytes were known to honor their abbots and high monks by preserving them with honey. This preservation served as a kind of mummification which staunched the decay of the monk's physical form. Western culture often noted the monk's selfless nature, so there's a high degree of chance that Tao learned of the mellified men from a Western traveler, who took the practice as one of altruism. Burmese monks weren't the only ones who embalmed their dead with honey. Stories from the Arabian Peninsula also describe wealthy parents who had their deceased children sealed in large jars of honey. Even royalty was known to utilize honey burials. Legend has it that Alexander the Great himself ordered his body buried with the purest white honey in a golden coffin so it could be carried back to Macedonia. English King Edward I was also buried with honey in 1307. Later, upon the examination of his body, he was found to have a remarkably well-preserved face and hand due to the wax and honey he'd been buried with. And finally, in 2012, in the Republic of Georgia, a former Soviet bloc nation, archaeologists discovered a massive burial mound for an ancient chieftain. The 40-foot-tall site was called Anna Anuri III, and within the earthen tomb, the scientists found amazing things. Seven bodies were interred within, each having been mummified with honey. While the sticky stuff was long gone, the corpses were covered with bee pollen and ancient bee legs, a clear sign they'd been slathered with the stuff before being interred. The main chamber was also loaded with artifacts and snacks, everything a chieftain could need during the afterlife. The most impressive find, however, were the cured crimson berries left behind. They smelled like musk and molasses. They were also 4,300 years old. The people who had buried them had slathered them with honey before burying their chief. And they were still nearly perfect. What makes honey so effective for preservation? 
It all starts with the high sugar content. It acts like a salt in osmosis, literally drying up and killing the bacteria that would cause corpse rot. Honey is also incredibly acidic and contains a small amount of hydrogen peroxide, which itself acts as an antiseptic. All of these features made it a perfect medium for natural embalming fluid. Honey has long since been hawked as a miracle cure, a natural bandage, and an important health food, a trend that continues to our modern day. But while science might support the story of the mellified man, the history does not. It would require a lot of drastic recalculations for the legend of the mellified man to be real. In the early days of medicine, homeopathy reigned supreme. The simple credo similia similibus curantur, or like cures like, was the maxim of human medicine. For example, if one suffered from a cold with a runny nose, one could take a concoction of distilled and diluted onion, which itself causes a runny nose and sniffling. Like cures like. Mellified men were rooted in the at-homeopathic theory, a theory which wasn't followed by Arabic doctors during the time Lee was working on his compendium. The miracle cure was said to have originated in Arabia, but that place was home to the most advanced medical treatment in the world at the time. Out of all of the ancient medical traditions, Islamic medicine is the one that most resembles our own. Islamic doctors pioneered surgical procedures like cauterization and cataract removal. They also knew how to keep surgical sites cleaned. They bathed their patients with salt water and vinegar to ward off post-surgical infections. Western medicine wouldn't reach this level until the 1800s, when germ theory was finally proven. In order for the legend of the mellified man to be true, Islamic doctors would have had to believe that eating pieces of candied old men would heal broken bones. And the evidence just doesn't bear that out. As sweet as that story may be, the truth about man as medicine is much more sour. The Compendium of Materia Medica is still studied hundreds of years after it was published. Li Shi Chen is venerated in China today. Statues of the old doctor still exist. And even now, some find his teachings worth examination. In fact, Kung Fu and action movie star Jet Li once described him as a personal hero. And for good reason. Lee was an obsessed man, bent on learning all he could about medicine and recording it for the good of the world. Within the Materia Medica, he put not only his medicinal expertise to use, but also his thoughts on phoenixes, dragon bones, corpse-eating demons, and, well, the occasional fire-pooping dog. The compendium also offers answers for locust plagues, and even a recipe for a delicious fish dinner. But for all of its fantastical elements and whimsy, Lee's opus is still one that asks us to look outside of the normal when we consider nature and medicine. And even when it came to using the human body to treat illness, Lee approached it with a good sense and dignity as he did with the rest of his work. 
Lee wrote in the preface to volume 52, quote, The human is a different species from all the other organisms used as sources of drugs. In later times, Taoist alchemists considered that many parts of the human body should be used as drugs, such as bone, flesh, and gall. This is really very rude and inhuman. In the present category, all parts of the human body that have been used as drugs are recorded. The use of drugs from the human body that is not contrary to morality is recorded in detail. Those drugs that are cruel or foul are not recorded in detail. He then later criticized the use of human flesh and bone in some remedies. Quote, in ancient times, people thought it was a benevolent deed to bury discarded human bones. Such people thought that they would be rewarded with good. But some alchemists collect human bones and use them as a drug with the hope of making profit from others. Should this be done to those who save people from diseases? Even dogs do not eat the bones of dogs. Why should a human eat the bones of other humans? Lee clearly found such practices repugnant and unforgivable. But not all physicians had such hang-ups. And not all those who sought cures cared much about where they came from. He took the long way back to his home. He wanted to make sure he was remembering everything his father's father had told him. He wanted to make sure he remembered the secret. Hamna was counting on him. When he arrived at his humble house, he went straight to his bees. They buzzed and flitted back and forth, barely bothering to land upon his skin. He'd often wondered if they had adopted him for their own. Romantic, maybe. Ridiculous, probably. But he'd long stopped caring about what others might think. The bees were as much a part of him as his own hands. He watched them fly busy patterns in the hot morning sun for a while. To be young and industrious and full of life again. It made him think of Hamna, battered, barely living Hamna. He'd left the earthen pots of honey he'd harvested on the ground when they told him what happened to the poor girl. He picked one up and removed the lid. He looked inside. The honey smelled sickly sweet and rich. He looked at the Nephilim tree far away in the heart of Alawat, and nodded. Stay busy, little ones, Atah told his bees. We'll need much more than this. And without another word, he tipped the pot back and began to swallow thick mouthfuls of honey. Thank you for joining us on this episode of These Things Betwixt. I hope you enjoyed the little walk down these sweet paths of the world.
We'd be incredibly grateful if you rated and reviewed the show on your podcatcher of choice. If you don't feel like rating and reviewing, that's okay. You can always just mention us to the local apiary as you begin drinking honey straight from the jar. If you've ever tried another panacea, or want to give me your opinion on the best candy medium for human medication, write into the show at thesethingsbetwixt at gmail.com. I would love to hear your spookiest and sweetest stories. These Things Betwixt is a random draw production and was written and hosted by Mark Belisle, that's me, and produced and edited by super skeptic Dave Hubbard. Dave's personality is smooth and mellifluous as his editing skills. Stay sweet for Holace. Special thanks to the honeybees. Buzz buzz, you beautiful creatures. The music in tonight's episode is Lying Here Helpless by Daniel Birch. For more information and music to purchase, visit danielbirchmusic.com. As a final note, these things betwixt is a labor of love. Nothing makes me happier than exploring these strange topics with you. But it takes time, effort, and money to provide these episodes for your enjoyment. And until I can manage to start raising beehives in my apartment balcony, I could always use some extra cash to keep this show going. I don't really have any interest in selling you insurance with spokes reptiles or website platforms, and I have zero interest in putting any of these episodes behind a paywall. So how about this? If you have the extra dough and think this podcast was worth a buck or two, well, we wouldn't turn it down. Tip me and your friendly neighborhood skeptic Dave on Venmo at randomdrawpod and help us keep the magic alive. Look us up or check the show notes to help us out. And until we meet again, stay safe, open your mind, and keep watching the shadows.